of donations that are showing up on the computer screen with a few seconds ago, a few seconds ago, a few seconds ago, a few seconds ago. The computer can't keep up with the donations as they come in, trying to shut up Sean talking about video games. Mm. With the point of it being raising money I for... I myself sold my house during the commercials and gave the entire uh, proceeds to make him stop. The point being to raise money for Warrior Foundation Freedom Station, absolutely fabulous charity, four-star rated by Charity Navigator. Um, Sean, positive Sean's cat donated $25. I wow, see. that's nice. I don't know what sort of income stream your your cat has, Sean, but that's very generous. Fantastic. Uh, look, there's Kathleen and Danielle and Jen and Clark and uh, Victoria and Sean. And there's Fred and Leslie giving together. Nice job, guys. Jerry, Elizabeth, way I, to go. I have a nice. feeling when the dust settles and the computer catches up, we will be at 150 If we're not, we may have to dip back in to Positive Sean talking about video games until we reach our goal. Somebody bust out the Geneva Convention, see if it addresses no, this. No, not now. Oh, okay. It's, it's wrong. It's just wrong. Later, if we need it, which I'm thinking we won't, because we're now up to 145 as the as the computer tries to catch up on. Uh, we're hoping for 300,000 by the end of the week. I didn't even get to the newest League of Legends patch notes. That's a oh, uh, crying shame. So um, the funeral, <coughs> the ceremony, is uh, beginning in Washington, D.C. Is that the National Cathedral? Yes. I, I believe, know, yes. I don't know how many people have been there. If you're ever in Washington, D.C., it's a bit of a trek, but you can take, um, if I remember correctly, the uh, the subway kind of system that they've got there out to it. And it's worth going out because it's, it's some unbelievable building. But that's where the um, ceremony for George H.W. Bush is happening. And it just started in there uh, carrying in the casket now, and we're a ways away from the speeches, which will bring you the highlights of. It's interesting. There, uh, it's one step at a time, then pause, then one step, very slow and dignified, and full of uh, well, pomp and circumstance. Usually, is something happy, but it's uh, oh, and now they're full speed. That's interesting. There's obviously a great deal of protocol that's followed in these things, these things. Obviously, it's just a symbol of this sort of thing because this happens gradually over time. But the moving away from the generation that experienced the Great Depression in World War II, you obviously are going to have a different population right? when that is uh, just stuff for the history books. Enormous changes in cultural norms. You know, we were talking uh, earlier about, you know, free pre-K for all and the government paying for everything and, and, and you know, people easily offended and in it for themselves well, and nobody's... socially isolated as opposed to a sense of community being involved in everything you do all the time. And nobody takes any threat to world peace seriously. Right. Yeah, not really. On, on a great scale. Not on a day-to-day visceral level like, well, certainly the World War II generation, they didn't, it wasn't a, a threat to world peace. It was, you know, world peace was gone. And it was a fight for survival. So... Yes, and, and you know, the, the hard times make for good people, make for strong people. Strong people make good times. Good times make weak people, and, and weak that's where, people make bad times. And that's where we are now. Eh, we're somewhere along there. Oh, <laughs> we'll let everybody decide continue. where we are. You can judge for yourself where you are on there. The latest study of the most recent census to be fully comprehended, which is 2014, I don't know what takes so long, Um but uh, 63% of non-citizens are on welfare programs. 63%. Uh, 4.6 million households. Oh, no, the immigrants are hardworking, and they actually they add to the blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I know. I know. A majority of non-citizens, including those with legal green card rights, are tapping into welfare programs set up to help poor and ailing Americans. The Census Bureau finds 
Uh, new analysis, the latest number, 63% of non-citizens are using a welfare program. It grows to 70% for those here 10 years or more, confirming another concern that once immigrants tap into welfare, they don't get off of it. Again, this is analysis of the census. This is not an activist making a claim on a cable news show. Welfare use is higher for every type of immigrant household than for native households, with the exception of housing programs. 63%, any welfare program, it's 63% of non-citizen households, all immigrant households, citizen and non-citizen. It's 55%, naturalized citizens, it's 50%, and native households, it's 35%. Almost 30% higher use of welfare among non-citizen households. What you want to do with this information depends on your worldview. I'm not telling you what to think, I'm just telling you what the facts are. Cash assistance, 31% of non-citizen households, um, and the decline is slight for all immigrant households and naturalized citizens, Then it's 19% for native households. Food assistance, it's 45% for non-citizen households, 21% for native households. Medicaid, 50% for non-citizen households, 23% for native households. Um, housing assistant is rem- assistance is remarkably even across uh, the populations for whatever reason. We are a nation of immigrants you've heard over and over again. During the great immigration booms, you had to prove that you're not only healthy, but had a means of supporting yourself, and there was no welfare state. You can either have huge levels of immigration, if you need it, if it's what's best for the country, or you can have a welfare state. You can't have both, or you will this is this isn't even a prediction or you will have 21 trillion dollars of debt real quick so the new york times reported that story themselves um about about the whole patrician president stuff and all that so that came yeah. from them okay. yes That's... yeah yeah and it caught on because you know then is now roughly it's you know between 85 and 89% of Working journalists identify as Democrats or liberals, now progressives, and, you know, roughly 5 to 8% identify as Republicans or conservatives. It's just, it's, it, cops tend to be a certain way. You know, heart surgeons tend to be a certain way. You know, bullfighters and, and accountants and nurses tend to have certain personality characteristics you know, uh, more than 50-50. It's more than a, uh, a random distribution. Journalists tend, in huge numbers, to be lefties. It just is. But it's amazing how that narrative about the patrician George Bush, totally out of touch, amazed at a supermarket scanner. That became, quote-unquote, the truth at the time. And it was made up. But, you know, you get the journalism you deserve, I guess. How old's Bill Clinton? Can you give me an age on him there, Sean? 92. Very youthful. Well, I'd like an age on Jimmy Carter, too, who does who does look very old, but I'm looking at all the uh, former yeah. presidents. Well, he's 72. So 72, he, and Jimmy, of course, has wrestled down, to some extent, at least brain cancer recently. Right. The reason I ask Bill Clinton, so he's the same age, roughly, as Trump. Trump's 71, isn't he? Mm-hmm. So they're almost the same age. Bill Bill seems very old and very frail. Trump does not seem old and frail at all. Right. Well, Bill had his big old heart problem. It'll take a toll on a guy. 
You know, the truth is, if you're a... uh, Hillary is so angry. I'm telling you, I just think that there's nothing in her mind right now, but I can't believe that a-hole's president down there. I think that's the only... I'm looking at her sitting in that proximity to him, I'll bet her her heart, which is already clogged with hate, I've seen the ultrasound, um, is now just bursting, brimming with bitterness. I'm not happy about this. I don't think I would do this now, um, but I have at times in my life, if there's somebody I really don't like and they're in the room, I can't think of anything else but how much I hate that person. Mm. It's not healthy. It's not good. I, like I said, I don't think I would do it now. But I think she's doing that at the memorial service. Right. She's sitting there a few feet away from Donald Trump and just, she can't, her, her mind's just kind of spinning in that way where you can't quite think straight. And Yeah. Yep. She's just sitting, looking straight ahead, not even moving. If you're just tuning in, when Mr. and Mrs. Trump came in and sat down in the pew and greeted the people closest to them, uh, everybody turned and nodded or at least looked. Oh, there they are. Hillary. Stone-faced, staring straight ahead, didn't blink. I don't think she was breathing. Now, we don't have microphones, so we don't know if Trump muttered, still ought to be in jail, or oh, anything boy, like that. See that. Not the place. Not the time. likely. The uh, Bush family is now being escorted into the National Cathedral to take their seats. And we could take a break, and if any speechifying starts, and the, you know, we'll bring any highlights here on the Armstrong and Getty Show. And, um, if any of the eulogies begin, we'll bring that to you. Coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the, of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. So we got the TVs on here, and um, uh, every TV station, all the networks and all the cable news are going completely live wall-to-wall with the funeral of George H.W. Bush. And uh, we're going to bring you highlights or the stuff we think you want to hear when it happens. Right now, it's it's uh, carrying in the casket and flags and saluting and all that sort of stuff, which doesn't play as well on the radio. Right. And there's, you know, there may be an organ playing and that sort of thing here and there, you know. If you'd like to listen to the service in entirety, certainly there are plenty of places to get that. So, And W will speak, and we'll bring you the beginning of that, um, at least the beginning of that, I'm, I'm, I'm certain. Yeah, we'll bring it to you, uh, and, and uh, most likely, you know, pause it as necessary and bring you the whole thing. Uh, I have no idea how this is going to unfold. The dignity and, uh, and deliberation of the whole thing is something to behold. It just... It, Everything moves very, very deliberately and slowly. And I get it. It's dignified. You don't want to rush about. But what do you want your funeral to be like? Oh, man. I don't know. I've thought about it a little. Uh, more or less a, a party. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, yeah. I don't I don't know. It's of course to me. I don't. I plan for everything. I'm a compulsive planner. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd like it to be uh, upbeat, fun. I've never, never thought play about some music. Roll. Play some rock and roll, for God's sake. Really? You know, if, if you're sincerely sad that I'm gone, you know, it's nice. It's nice of you. Um, but for goodness sakes, I mean, I didn't, like, go around in my life trying to spread grief and, and, and disappointment. You know, uh, but turn the music up and have a good time. <laughs> Get a little drunk. You know, the words of H.L. Mencken, uh, wink at a homely girl and, and make her day. You know, something like that. What? 
Oh, it was in the 30s. What kind, it was the 30s. What kind of a sentiment is that? It's a fabulous sentiment. Wink at a homely girl and yeah. make her day. Yeah. It's a little patronizing. Mm. Wow. I'll take H.L. Mencken. I think that's of its time. Right. <laughs> that's what I just said. I'm not, I'm not sure I would say it now. Yeah. Um, I'll say it again. Uh what was I going to say? Something. Oh, my, my funeral a hole. My experience with funerals has been. I'm going to have a tape. I'm going to have a tape of that. Me saying that. If it's necessary to play this, I want you to play this. If anybody like is arguing or being a pain or something. Hey, hey, it's my funeral. Now settle down. <laughs> my experience with funerals has been, and I kind of noticed it watching the people uh, here with the George H. W. Is the uh, unless it's sudden and unexpected, which is um, a, a little different. Sure. I've been, I've been to a few of those. Right. But if it's, a, if it's you know, fully expected, saw it coming, the closest family members tend to be way more relaxed and upbeat than everybody else. That's been my experience. Right. They're not wondering how they should act. They're reacting out of... How they feel, and I guess the rest of us are sincerely, and I guess the rest of us are playing to the you know. Uh, I'd rather be too somber rather than to the other direction if I right. you know, if I get it wrong. Right. Yeah. Who was the one guy? It was when uh, various uh, football champions and Masters winners and sports heroes were paying their respects in the Capitol yesterday. There was one guy in like a bright blue blazer with checks on it, uh, check and and. and and I thought, wow, dude, hey, tone it down a little bit. But that'll be another uh, thing in my funeral. Don't don't be uh, everybody dressing in black, please. Really? No, no. That's I just crazy. assume I'm going I mean, to outlive you, so I'm, I'm keeping all this in mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just, uh, unless you find it slimming and you just prefer it, then go ahead. But it's certainly not so obligatory. So wear whatever you want to your funeral. Or, yeah, I might even uh, pick a theme. Might be a you know costume party. I don't know. <laughs> Dress as something incredibly politically incorrect. But you uh, you strike upon a point that I think in most cases the person who died would be much less formal and uptight about a lot of stuff than the people that are there to honor the person who died, right. which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. Although funerals are for the living, so you're, you know you're paying respect to the family that's still alive because the dead person doesn't actually know what you're doing. Right, and and you have to recognize their grief because even in the case of the Bush family, for instance, uh, George H. W. was quite old and had been significantly ill for a very long time, and according to one friend of the family, W. had been saying for some time it could be any time now. Um, so. You know. I thought it was interesting. But, uh, I'm sorry, I was working up to the point. In spite of that, there is still a great deal of grief because their dad isn't around anymore. I thought it was interesting that uh, George talked to him on the phone last. And um, I guess that would be, you know, because a number of other people were there. He must have been one of those, you know, he comes and goes close to you can't go every time. I right. mean, just it's a reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Uh, The singing has begun at the ceremony there in Washington, D.C. No eulogies yet, so we will stay away from that. We're raising money for a Warrior Foundation Freedom Station, trying to hit $300,000 by this Friday. Um, We did not quite get to 150, so we have to decide if later in the program we're going to, because that was our mini goal, we're going to have Sean revisit talking about video games. I'm not sure I can stand it, but we are currently at $148,209, which is pretty damned impressive. Thank you very much for giving 
Um, we need more people to do that. Yeah, whether you can give $10 or, or 1000 or 10000 or somewhere in the middle, whatever's comfortable, whatever's just a little uh, beyond comfortable, uh, give it a, the Warrior Foundation Freedom Station uh, gives so much to our wounded warriors, our uh, folks suffering from PTSD, exactly when they need it the most. Guys, gals from all over the country, whatever they need, be it psychological, physical, they got their prosthetics, they they need help in one sort or another. They, they're, they're 20 years old, they're terribly wounded, and they're going out into the world on their own, and their veterans' benefits haven't started yet, and they are dead broke. That happens all the time, because often the government benefits take many months to be processed. Meanwhile, these kids... They're horribly wounded and don't have a job. That's how they end up on the street, except for Warrior Foundation Freedom Station that steps in right when they're needed the most and helps those people. And they're all volunteers. Nobody's making any money, which is amazing. So this audio we have of this next story, Sean, is this the kid arguing in front of the city council? Yeah, this is him uh, making his case. Let's hear a little bit about this. This is a nine-year-old in his town, argues in front of, a nine-year-old, argues in front of his town to try to change the law, the prohibition against throwing snowballs in his town. I feel this is an outdated law. The law was created many years ago. Kids want to have snowball fights without breaking the law. Kids want to have a voice in our town. The kids of 7th agree this this law needs to be changed. I asked many friends in my school if they felt this was a good law. I have 20 letters from kids in my class that would like to have this changed. Today's kids need reasons to play outside. Research suggests that a lack of exposure to the outdoors can lead to obesity, ADHD, anxiety, and depression. Right? Kids want to have snowball fights without breaking the law. Sounds like you've just changed the law, buddy. If mommy and daddy could write a little check to my re-election campaign, we might consider it, son. And then after his arguing his point and the city, city council unanimously approving a measure to legalize snowball throwing in their town, uh, the mayor allowed the uh, young man to throw the first legal snowball in the town in quite some years. <laughs> that story just delighted me. I, and the little nine-year-old it, wore a bow tie to argue before the city council. Trying not to focus on the absurdity of snowball fighting being illegal and somehow officially on the books in the first place. <laughs> right, but, exactly. But shout out to this young lad. Uh, you got to like that. And he worked in the obesity and everything like that. Some statistics. Right. I, got, point there I, I have 20 letters from my classmates that all say that we should throw snowballs. <laughs> That's awesome. Class councilman, I uh, observed you going into the Highway Motel 6 the other night with a, a woman who did not appear to be your wife. I'll assume she's your sister if I can get your vote. What's coming up in your news, Marshall Phillips? Well, the funeral for Bush 41 is underway. GOP senators don't mince words about the Khashoggi murder and the 2018's happiest countries on the earth list has just been released. Well, of course the Republican senators are criticizing Trump, because they're in the other... What? Wait? What? Huh? Oh, boy. (laughs) It's complicated. Oh, boy. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. He'll say, are you married? We'll So here's the part of the George H.W. Bush funeral that I was looking forward to. John Meacham, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian, written a number of books about a number of historical figures, including a biographer 
authorized biographer of uh, George H.W. Bush and knew him very well, is about to give his speech, and uh, this should be really good, so here we go. It was almost over, even before it had fully begun. Shortly after dawn on Saturday, September 2nd, 1944, Lieutenant Junior Gray George Herbert Walker Bush, joined by two crewmates, took off from the USS San Jacinto to attack a radio tower on Chichijima. As they approached the target, the air was heavy with flak. The plane was hit. Smoke filled the cockpit. Flames raced across the wings. My God, Lieutenant Bush thought, this thing's gonna go down. Yet he kept the plane in its 35-degree dive, dropped his bombs, and then roared off out to sea, telling his crewmates to hit the silk. Following protocol, Lieutenant Bush turned the plane so they could bail out. Only then did Bush parachute from the cockpit. The wind propelled him backward, and he gashed his head on the tail of the plane as he flew through the sky. He plunged deep into the ocean, bobbed to the surface, and flopped onto a tiny raft. His head bleeding, his eyes burning, his mouth and throat raw from salt water. The future 41st President of the United States was alone. Sensing that his men had not made it, he was overcome. He felt the weight of responsibility as a nearly physical burden. And he wept. Then, at four minutes shy of noon, a submarine emerged to rescue the downed pilot. George Herbert Walker Bush was safe. The story, his story and ours, would go on by God's grace. Through the ensuing decades, President Bush would frequently ask, nearly daily, He'd ask himself, why me? Why was I spared? And in a sense, the rest of his life was a perennial effort to prove himself worthy of his salvation on that distant morning. To him, his life was no longer his own. There were always more missions to undertake, more lives to touch, and more love to give. And what a headlong race he made of it all. He never slowed down. On the primary campaign trail in New Hampshire once, he grabbed the hand of a department store mannequin asking for votes. When he realized his mistake, he said, never know, gotta ask. You can hear the voice, can't you? As Dana Carvey said, the key to a Bush 41 impersonation is Mr. Rogers trying to be John Wayne. George 
Herbert Walker Bush was America's last great soldier statesman, a 20th century founding father. He governed with virtues that most closely resemble those of Washington and of Adams, of TR and of FDR, of Truman and of Eisenhower, of men who believed in causes larger than themselves. Six foot two, handsome, dominant in person, President Bush spoke with those big, strong hands, making fists to underscore points. A master of what Franklin Roosevelt called the science of human relationships. He believed that to whom much was given, much is expected. And because life gave him so much, he gave back again and again and again. He stood in the breach in the Cold War against totalitarianism. He stood in the breach in Washington against unthinking partisanship. He stood in the breach against tyranny and discrimination. And on his watch, a wall fell in Berlin. A dictator's aggression did not stand. And doors across America opened to those with disabilities. And in his personal life, he stood in the breach against heartbreak and hurt, always offering an outstretched hand, a warm word, a sympathetic tear. If you were down, he would rush to lift you up. And if you were soaring, he would rush to savor your success. Strong and gracious, comforting and charming, loving and loyal, he was our shield in danger's hour. Now, of course, there was ambition, too, loads of that. To serve, he had to succeed. To preside, he had to prevail. Politics, he once admitted, isn't a pure undertaking. Not if you want to win, it's not. An imperfect man, he left us a more perfect union. It must be said that for a keenly intelligent statesman of stirring, almost unparalleled private eloquence, public speaking was not exactly a strong suit. Fluency in English, President Bush once remarked, is something that I'm often not accused of. Looking ahead to the 88 election, he observed, inarguably, it's no exaggeration to say that the undecideds could go one way or the other. And late in his presidency, he allowed that we're enjoying sluggish times, but we're not enjoying them very much. <laughs> his tongue may have run amok at moments, but his heart was steadfast. His life code, as he said, was tell the truth, don't blame people, be strong, do your best, try hard, 
forgive, stay the course. And that was and is the most American of creeds. Abraham Lincoln's Better Angels of Our Nature and George H.W. Bush's Thousand Points of Light are companion verses in America's national hymn. For Lincoln and Bush both called on us to choose the right over the convenient, to hope rather than to fear, and to heed not our worst impulses, but our best instincts. In this work, he had the most wonderful of allies in Barbara Pierce Bush, his wife of 73 years. He called her Bar, the Silver Fox, and, when the situation warranted, the Enforcer. He was the only boy she ever kissed. Her children, Mrs. Bush liked to say, always wanted to throw up when they heard that. In a letter to Barbara during the war, young George H.W. Bush had written, I love you, precious, with all my heart, and to know that you love me means my life. How lucky our children will be to have a mother like you. And as they will tell you, they surely were. As Vice President, Bush once visited a children's leukemia ward in Krakow. Thirty-five years before, he and Barbara had lost a daughter, Robin, to the disease. In Krakow, a small boy wanted to greet the American Vice President. Learning that the child was sick with the cancer that had taken Robin, Bush began to cry. To his diary later that day, the Vice President said this, My eyes flooded with tears, and behind me was a bank of television cameras. And I thought, I can't turn around. I can't dissolve because of personal tragedy in the face of the nurses that give of themselves every day. So I stood there looking at this little guy, tears running down my cheek, hoping he wouldn't see. But if he did, hoping he'd feel that I loved him. That was the real George H.W. Bush, a loving man with a big, vibrant, all-enveloping heart. And so we ask as we commend his soul to God, and as he did, why him? Why was he spared? The workings of Providence are mysterious, but this much is clear. The George Herbert Walker Bush, who survived that fiery fall into the waters of the Pacific three quarters of a century ago, made our lives and the lives of nations freer, better, warmer, and nobler. That was his mission. That was his heartbeat. And if we listen closely enough, we can hear that heartbeat even now. For it's the heartbeat of a lion. 
a lion who not only led us, but who loved us. That's why him. That's why he was spared. Well, that was pretty good. Historian John Meacham there, speaking about George H.W. Bush at his memorial service at the National Cathedral. I wanted to remember, I'm, I'm just not good at remembering quotes, what what the politics is not, or politics is, or not a pure business, not a pure business, if you want to win. If you want to win, which right. you, you got to win to accomplish any things you want to do that might be pure, right? Something everybody needs to remember, I suppose, including me. Mm-hmm. Um... His son, George W. Bush, is expected to speak. We'd like to take that also. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. get into some of the news of the day before we get back to the uh, funeral of George H.W. Bush. And when uh, George W. Bush speaks, we'll bring you that. Um, we should do an update here pretty soon on Warrior Foundation Freedom Station as we raise money. But we wanted to give you some news headlines. Right. Right. Hey, you know, I, I can't help but interject. I think uh, George H.W. Bush, Bush would have been a huge supporter of Warrior Foundation Freedom Station. Oh, of course. If he was aware of it. You know, there, there are more than one great charity that help our fighting folks. But uh, this there, is a wonderful one. There aren't that many four-star rated charities by Charity Navigator, though. No. Um, if you want your money to go the furthest. And, the best uh, of the best. Yeah, and uh, this is a four-star rated charity, Warrior Foundation Freedom Station. Go to armstrongandgetty.com. It's probably worth noting that's the only sort that we would ever get involved with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Those who are paying big salaries and spending tons on marketing and that sort of thing. No, that's, we're not gonna... that's always bothered me. Yeah, it's always bothered me. People yeah. taking these giant salaries to run these things. Mm-hmm. All right. So, a couple of headlines for you. Uh, Mueller seeks no prison time for former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, citing his substantial assistance. The interesting aspect of this is the stuff we know about is a big nothing. Um, you know, did he meet old Sisliak and jaw with him or not? And he apparently he lied about it, allegedly. There were a handful of Trump aides who I think really needed to get lawyered up because they lied about stuff they didn't need to be lying about. And it's a bit of a head-scratcher to me. But there are big, a memo came out late, uh, was it last night or two nights ago, um, about the, the fact that they're recommending no prison time for Flynn. Uh, but there are big old blacked out redacted parts that he's helping them with ongoing criminal investigations on blacked out. So we don't know. We have no idea what's going on there. Um, headline in uh, the Washington Post, President Trump traveled 250 yards to greet George W. Bush. He used a stretch limo and an eight-vehicle motorcade to make the trip. Uh, I think that is probably really unfair. I think the Secret Service probably told him we should probably drive from the White House to the Capitol. So I don't, you know, okay, all right, fine. Then you're, there's your, uh, your uh, China deal. I'm so interested in this story. It would appear to me that President Trump is making real potential progress with the Chinese. Long sit down with Xi. 
142 points they went over of trade and unhappiness and how do we do deal with this? What do we do about that? Hundred with the president because usually it's underlings who show up to those meetings. Our underlings talk to their underlings. It was the two heads of state going head to head on this stuff. Well, this is maybe the one issue that Donald Trump has thought about for for many many years and knows what he's talking oh, yeah, about. Yeah, I've seen interviews in the nineties. He's talking yeah, about it. There there are a lot of issues. It's pretty obvious as he is running for president. He'd never really thought much about, and his opinions have gone back and forth over the years. Whenever he's asked about him, this one though, he is he was really into. Right. Decades ago, he's got. So the go fact ahead. that he is sitting down uh, talking about it is not that surprising on this one, right? He's been criticized a lot for announcing uh, the agreement, though the Chinese are not like are not quite ready to say, yeah, yeah, we agreed to well, it. That's a salesman thing. Well, see, that's the thing. He's been criticized harshly for it for being naive and not understanding how the Chinese work and that sort of thing. But he's pegging the negotiations. Sure, he's saying they agreed to this. They did at dinner. He said it to me. It's the same reason the car salesman says, so do you want the undercoating? Wait, 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 wait. Slow down. I'm not buying this necessarily. Is that the right strategy for dealing with China? I don't know, honestly. But the idea that he does it because he's stupid, that's not so. It's a sales technique. I'm trying to make it work. Art of the deal. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.